0: Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. And they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take away the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake he recovered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in high school, I worked one summer in a local nature preserve called Bays Mountain Park uh, right outside my hometown of Kingsport, Tennessee, and I was a camp counselor. So all the camp things with little kids, you know, crafts, planetarium show, Uh, hikes there's some time out like gathering leaves and rubbing leaves but uh, and the reptile show so reptile show was a time where part of my job was holding a corn snake or a milk snake and walking around with it and you know two fingers remember two fingers right head to toe you get to pet the snake and you know I did that job I did not love that part of my job uh, but my boss was another breed entirely. Dave David Taylor still works there, and is is famous for his poisonous snake bites. Let me just say this: he stops regularly, seeing a snake on one side of the road, and moves it over. And had such a regular habit of this, it was common for him to be bitten by a, a copperhead rattlesnake in my at Bays Mountain go to the hospital, he knew what to do, you know, knew where the antivenom was even, like, you know, this is sort of became routine. Well, um, you know, now this one time, Dave uh, shows up with a rattlesnake bite at our ER, at our hospital, and it's a new person at the desk. And he shows up, and he's so chill, because this happens all the time. <laughs> so he's so calm and collected that the person at the desk thought he was nuts, which... <laughs> He might be, right? Uh, and, and so she actually kind of disregarded him and let him sit there in the waiting room for hours. There were lots more acute cases that she thought came in. Case after case, he started losing feeling in his legs, started spreading up through his body. Uh, and finally, somebody left the door open for just a sec, and he just let himself back into the ER because he knew where the antivenom was. And took it himself, right? This is kind of crazy that I worked with. So snakes, you know, like Indiana Jones. I wonder if the children of Israel right here are going like, snakes, why did it have to be snakes? I mean, everybody except for David Taylor thinks that. Um, This morning, we're going to look at this outline, the sickness and the fever and the antivenom and how we take our medicine as we look at this passage. You know, the sickness I'm referring to in this passage is not the snake bite. There's another sickness in the Israelite camp before the snakes even showed up. Now, people are all infected. Uh, The sickness, it's a sickness we've already seen in Numbers. But what's different is this is not the same people who had the sickness before. And I'm talking about the sickness of complaint. In Numbers 11, that was their parents' generation. There is a 40-year gap in your Bible in between Numbers 19 and Numbers 20. And so this is the next generation. These are people who have spent 40 years wandering in the desert. This is where many of them have been born, and many of them have grown up. And you can hear some of the same complaints in their mouths as their parents. Uh, I want to remind you of the circumstances. So here's what's going on. We picked this up at the beginning of this passage. They're on the brink of the promised land, and they asked for permission to go through a small country in between them and Canaan. And So they're on the east, the, uh, the, the east side of, of Canaan. And so what they wanted to do is just pass through. And the king of Edom looks at them and is like, no way. This is a group of people that, if given a chance, could overrun our entire country. So instead he says no, and they have to, they have to backtrack. So they've gone up north, and now they have to turn around and go back south to circumvent the entire country of Edom. And they begin to be upset about this, right? They've had so many detours so many backtracks so many of like wrong ways on their journey this is what's coming up in them again right complaint because it's like really here we go again are we ever going to make it you can can you feel the tension behind this passage and so that's what leads to this of this complaining um, of this impatience in them i know it's hard for many people if you've grown up in the church to find humor in the bible but this passage is supposed to be funny Actually, this passage and next week. Both of them are supposed to be funny. So, if you listen closely to what their complaint is, it's supposed to be humorous. Listen to what they say. They say, first, there's no bread or water here except for this worthless food. Like, you know, it's, it's like there's nothing to eat except for this, this food that we don't like that we're tired of. This manna, this miraculous provision from God. And as we've said before, this manna, what it, the way it's described is it's got the, it's a little bit oily. You can make it into a dough and fry it up and it's sweet. I've described this before as donuts. This is what you get when you, you think about what, what manna is supposed to taste like. Right. Nothing but this worthless donuts, as we go to the promised land. But again, their impatience and their complaining are symptoms of something deeper inside of them. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. I'm going to lead you there, okay? It's, but there's a soul sickness. Soren Kierkegaard describes uh, sin as sickness unto death. The people don't even know that they're sick. They, they don't even know the second generation of Israelites and these, these symptoms, complaining, impatience. This is what's coming out of them. Now, in my family of origin, we have a, a phrase And I don't know where my parents got this from, but it's called in the snake position. And the longer version of that is if it were a snake, it would have bitten you. Okay, so this is used to describe things like losing your wallet and your car keys, most notably associated with my dad all the time when I was a kid, right? And so if the wallet and keys were in the snake position... That means they're in an obvious place, <laughs> like, right, like right there. You can't see them. They're right there. If it were a snake, it would have bitten you. And this is what's going on with the Israelites. This is what's going on with them. There's something that's there in the snake position, something that's dangerous that if it were a snake, it would have bitten you. The symptoms of this soul sickness, impatience, complaining. But it shows us a picture of something. All sin works this way. This is how sin works in the human heart. It's so in front of you and yet you don't see it. This reminds me of another passage way back at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 read the story of Cain and Abel and God famously says, he warns Cain of the nature of sin. He says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you or desires to consume you. and the picture there is sin is like a wild animal that's crouching, right It's getting smaller, but it's because it's about to pounce. It's dangerous. it could destroy you and all sin looks this way to us, harmless, in the snake position, right in front of you, but doesn't look like a big deal. This is what how sin works. you know if, think about. Um, Things that are dangerous for us, but we don't see as dangerous. Uh, One example of this that maybe a lot of us learned over the pandemic was isolation. You know, isolation for Christians is dangerous. Being isolated from other Christians, not having regular people encouraging you, that you're encouraging, that you're walking with, that you're praying for. This is really, really dangerous, and it looks like nothing. It looks like an absence. You know, there's not anything going on. It's crouching. The dangerous position. But the snakes give us another hint of what's going on in this passage that I want you to see. Now, as I'm preparing this passage, I came across images from these three deserts that the Israelites journeyed through. And what's fascinating is these are carbon dated back 3,500 years ago. These are all over uh, these three deserts, and they're images of snakes. It's fascinating. You can see evidence that they walked through this way. Evidence that this was part of um, their journey, but these snakes are described here as fiery snakes, which doesn't describe either what they look like or what they did. They're not fire-breathing snakes. They don't look bright colored. They described how they feel when you've been bitten, the the sensation. Fiery describes what happens when you're bitten by one of these poisonous snakes. You develop a fever. This is what happens today with Dave Taylor, (laughs) We've got bitten by all these poisonous snakes. You develop a fever. There's swelling, right? There's there's a sense of deep thirst that you can't quench. Your body feels like it's on fire. You can't keep liquids in your system. This is what fiery describes here. And and I know some of you, again, have a hard time seeing um, what God is like in the book of Numbers, too. We've been through all these kind of testing narratives, and this may seem like God is like Gosh, you know, these Israelites rebelling yet again, what can I come up with? What have I not done yet? You know, like, oh, snakes, that's a great idea. And, and God sometimes comes across to us in these passages as if God is being petty, if God is being mean, if God's being arbitrary. But neither the judgment nor the remedy for this judgment is random, this, You know, why'd it have to be snakes? There's a good answer for why it had to be snakes. This testing narrative is number seven. There we go. Seven in the book of Numbers. And we've walked through these. And this is the last one of these we're going to look at. This is the last one. But it is the 10th test overall. There are three of them in the book of Exodus and seven in the book of Numbers. Ten together, and that's really important, and I want you just to think about this. Ten, where have we seen this before? The number ten, helping a group of people be persuaded of something. Ten things that happen that reveal the hearts of people. Hmm, anybody with me? Can you help me out here, crowd? Not the commandments, the plagues. That's right, the plagues. Egypt, 10 plagues. 10 plagues that revealed the heart of the Pharaoh and the heart of the Egyptians. Remember, Pharaoh famously would not let God's people leave. It took 10 plagues to finally convince him. And if you remember, the last one is the worst, the Passover what Jesus celebrated at the Last Supper. We'll remember this week. But it took 10 plagues and the last one being the worst for Pharaoh to finally relent and let the people go. Now, remember what I've been saying all along. In the Torah, these two books, Exodus and Numbers, are paired together. Exodus is the story of God um, delivering his people out of Egypt. Numbers is the story of God delivering Egypt out of his people, detoxing them from Egypt. Could it be, hmm, could it be that these are connected today? That God in Exodus, using 10 plagues to drive his people out of Egypt, to reveal the heart of Pharaoh, is mirrored with 10 testing narratives, and the last being the worst, where God reveals the hearts of the people to drive Egypt out of of them. Yeah, could be. That might just be what's going on here. Let me explain this. Even though Egypt is not explicitly mentioned in this passage, this is all about Egypt. One of the most prominent of Egyptian gods was the snake, particularly the cobra. Wadjet, who's the goddess of lower Egypt, is represented as a snake and gave the Pharaoh, this is Tutankhamun's crown. You can't see it's quite at the top, but I'll show you another picture. A cobra called the Uraeus. This is what all Egyptian pharaohs wore on their crown. Now, the, the Egyptians loved the symbol of the cobra because uh, a cobra, an 8 to 10 foot cobra, can rise up really high and spread its hood. And it's very menacing. It's, uh, it, it gives this image of raw power. And Wajat, this was a gift from the gods to the Egyptian pharaohs as a symbol of their protection over Egyptian power. This is why all the pharaohs wore this on their headdress. This is why this is all over Egyptian art. There's a picture of the power of Egypt. So when Aaron, when God tells Aaron, hey, you're going to take your staff and Moses, you're going to take your staff and you're going to throw it down in the Egyptian court in front of Pharaoh and it's going to turn into a what? A snake. This was communicating something to them. This God has power over the snake. This God has power over your gods. This is what's going on here. Fast forward to Numbers 21. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes, says Indiana Jones? This is why. God is showing them a very vivid picture of where their hopes are located. Even this second generation is looking back to Egypt and saying why has god left us out here to die this is yet another round of the complaint another round of like god we're 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 weary of this god and they're looking backward and god's saying like well, you want you're done with me you want to go back to egypt here's your deliverer right here slithering among you right here and of course this also reminds us of genesis chapter 3 where the serpent comes to adam and eve in the garden and insinuates that God is not keeping His promises. And I'm using that word insinuate on purpose. Insinuate is related to the word sinuous, bendable, flexible. Right? What is the serpent doing with God's truth? He's bending it. He's flexing it. To say things that God never said. To to go back on God's promise. Instead of remembering, oh, God has been overabundantly... Generous with us to provide all of this in the garden. What does the serpent say? All the trees of the garden. No, surely God is holding out on you. See again. The 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 poison in this passage. The poison of the serpent in their in their in their skin is to show them something of the nature of sin. Right, that po- sin is like poison inside of you. It bites and it stings, inflicting hurt on the inside as well as the outside. And they needed to see that there's a poison on the inside of them in order they could understand by seeing the poison that's on the outside of them. That's the point of this. Again, for the final time of this preaching series, this is about God saying, I am rescuing you from your love of Egypt, your worldliness, your desire to have all the stuff of Egypt that's somehow going to save you. Do not love Egypt. Beware Egypt and its ways. Beware a love of enticements and the ways of the world. They look good, but they are poison. There's a hidden poison. You know, um, if you take an ordinary glass of water, ordinary clear glass of water, and you stick a spoon in it, y'all have all done this before, and it looks like the the spoon bends. It looks like the spoon breaks. Right? That's a trick of really, that's related to how, wa- how this looks through water. It's called refraction, where it looks like something is broken. And of course, you pull it out, and you're like, no, it's a normal spoon. Um, the world we are living in, the world we live in now creates a distortion in the way that we look at reality. and the way we look at the reality... You, you, so people looking at life and living life in such a way that the secular culture has defined it, and actually it creates a refracted, broken view of the world. And it can make you feel like your faith is broken. It can make you feel like your God is broken. You look around and you're like, everybody's life seems better than mine. I am free from the, they're free from all the things that weigh me down. And I thought God was going to deliver. And I thought this world was supposed to work for Christians. I, isn't, what, where is God? What is God up to? Again, be careful. Be warned. There is a broken way of looking. It's a refraction. It's a visual distortion that we suffer from all the time, looking at this world and thinking, that's where it is. You know, if we're really honest with ourselves, and that's why I keep driving this home. We love Egypt too much. We love it. We love all the stuff of it, and man, Raleigh, North Carolina—I've said this a hundred times in this church—it's the most spiritually dangerous place I know of on the planet. Because all as it promises us is this refracted view of reality that you can have it all, and you can be it all, and you don't need Jesus. And he actually doesn't provide much, right? Loving the things of the world looks like workaholism. It can look like absorption in your career. I just need to do this for a season. Just do this for a little bit. It can look like an overlove of leisure, avocation, hobbies. Lots of things we love to do that are good things but are not good enough. Materialism, collecting experiences, collecting good things, an overconcern with relationships or social status or popularity, emotional dependence on other people, even worry can be one of the ways that we show an overdependence upon this world a love of Egypt. And you may be a long-term Christian. Some of y'all can be like, man, I could preach this sermon better than the bald guy this morning. I know you could. I know you could, right? This is not new information for many of you. And you could say amens to all the like, this world will not satisfy. It will disappoint you. And you could say, yes, yes, yes. But there's a difference between recognizing it and repenting of it. There's a difference between being sick of it. Like this is a poison in my blood. And being like, oh, yeah, I can diagnose that. Really good on an analysis. Analysis is, will not rid you of the poison in your veins. We're in a dangerous place. To be a sinner and recognize this is say, I, I need Jesus. I need, His, I need His healing. I need Him to deliver me. And We have the same problem with the Israelites. We don't know we're sick. And just like God is being gracious and showing them, like, look, this is what you're looking to. You want Egypt? Here's Egypt. You know, God is offering us over and over opportunities to free ourselves, to let go, to walk away from the stuff that's actually killing us on the inside. Are you sick yet of your love of Egypt? Are you sick of it yet? Are you okay with it? The anti venom. You know, I think what's fascinating in this story is that the snakes don't go away. They cry out to God, and the snakes don't go away. They're still there. God doesn't take them away. Instead, God gives them this intricate process. Did you notice this? Okay, Moses, you're going to go and make a make some do some art project right now. To make a little art project. You're going to take uh, metal and you're going to shape it in the form of a serpent and you're going to stick it up on a pole and that's what's going to work. It's a process, and and I I think this is kind of bizarre, but because we've walked through a pandemic. We can get this in a way we probably wouldn't have gotten three years ago. I want you to think about vaccine. You know, God takes the very thing here that causes their illness, and they have to take it into them in order for them to be healed. This is what happens with vaccine. A vaccine is taking part of the sickness, putting it into your body, in order that you can be inoculated against a sickness, right? That's how vaccinations work. Um, Some of the early proponents of vaccination in this country were actually reformed Christian preachers. In the late 1700s, uh, it was part of the message in a lot of churches in the northeast in this country to take a part in vaccination. And actually, several famous preachers, Puritan preachers that you would know their names, all died because they had the the quantity's wrong on this. But they identified something about vaccination that made theological sense to them. This is why they did this. They, they said something about this. Um, getting close to the evil, taking the evil directly into you to counteract the evil. Um, taking the poison into you to counteract the poison. They knew this from Scripture. They're like, oh, here here at Exodus chapters 15 right before this they come upon this water that's bitter and Moses takes a piece of wood and throws it in the the bitter water to make it sweet to make it drinkable they're like there's something about that there's something about this in Numbers chapter 21 they're like there's something about taking the poison into you that makes you cured of the poison Something about that made sense as some rudimentary form of substitutionary atonement. And that's what's going on with the snake. It's in the pole. It's highly symbolic. So let's look at both of these. So the snake first, like a vaccine, that which cured came in the shape of the thing that caused their swelling and their fever and their dying. I mean, looking at the serpent, it wasn't some magical formula. It wasn't a magical cure. It was them taking God at his word and looking upon the object he had told them to make that was in the shape of the thing that was hurting them. So Christ, for our sakes, is made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's made like one of us. And then Scripture goes on to tell us even more. In 2 Corinthians 5, He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. And again, that phrase, people have stumbled over that. Does that mean Jesus became sinful That's not what it's describing. It's not describing Jesus suddenly becoming um, selfish and angry and hating God and murderous. Rather, God made him to be sin for us. Jesus becomes the image of the serpent. He got what the the serpent deserved. Uh, You know, on this week, this week of all weeks, I want to encourage you to follow. This is what we do as a church. We follow the slow steps of Jesus to the cross and it's a great exercise for this week to pull out your bible and read slowly through john chapter 12 through chapter 20 and walk the steps with jesus walk the steps where he is on the road set his vision toward calvary and, and as he makes his way toward the cross read it in small bits but look at some of the things you'll notice in this on the cross jesus cries out i thirst Why? Because he is taking into himself the poison of humanity, the poison that's in my blood and your blood. He's taking this into him. He has the fever and he's got the swelling. He's got the sickness unto death. And then he says, father, you've forsaken me. He gets the hell of eternal dislocation, the triune self of God pulled apart, right? Jesus is the ultimate antivenom for our sin. You need it to survive. You must have it. You've got to get it. You're, you're, you've got numbing sensations in your body. Remember my friend David Taylor. Numbing sensations in your body. You know, even today, the snake is a symbol for us of healing. It was early Christians who looked upon two symbols in ancient you know, Greek goddesses and gods, the, the, um, the rod of Aeschylus. Aeschylus Asclepius, sorry, the god of healing and the staff of Hermes, uh, the god of protection. And they looked at that and they're like, that tells me a story. I know that story. That story of a snake on a pole. That story that brought me healing. This is why in our country today that the modern American Medical Association adopted that as its symbol. You're riding around Raleigh, you see the, the snake on the pole on the back end of an ambulance or on your medical bracelet. This is something that early Christians adopted And said, yes, that's it. I have a sickness that nothing else can cure except for Jesus. And I need him. I need him. Second, the pole. Again, not random. Not just a uh, helpful way for people to see a snake statue. I mean, yes, it's hard for two million people to see a small bronze serpent. But this is not just some way that Moses was like, hey, let's lift it up a little higher. This has roots, again, in Egypt. In Egypt, it was a practice of Egyptian armies to make giant banners or or, uh, put on a pole a symbol of the gods of the people they were conquering, that they were fighting against. And in effect, they were saying, look, we're so powerful that we can turn your own gods against you. Look, we can carry your gods into war against you. And it was very effective. It's very effective against opposing armies. Seeing the the, the images of their own gods come against them into battle. It was one of the things that like helped the Egyptians great psychological warfare to manipulate and to dis- dishearten the enemies they were fighting. Again, this is what God's doing. When God, this is what God's up to when He puts the bronze snake on the pole. God's, it was not just helpful. This is again God's one-upping Egypt. Look, God is flexing. He's saying like, I can take your ultimate enemies symbol, the Pharaoh's symbol of power that he wears on his head. I've even got that in my hand. I got that in my hand. I'm this in charge. <coughs> and if you know your scripture, you know that Jesus takes this little this little weird story. And he sits down with a Pharisee in John chapter three. And he tells him this story He says, you know, just like the snake had to be lifted up on the pole So the Son of Man had to be lifted up. And then he goes on straight from there to that passage that everybody knows for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right, that phrase, Jesus lifted up on a pole. Why does Jesus hold that story out? Because Jesus is not once, but twice, but three times lifted up. He's lifted up on a cross as he's crucified, nailed in place. He's lifted up from the grave in his resurrection. And he's lifted up into heaven in his ascension. This is such a picture of our Jesus, of what we look to, you know, precisely on the cross. What looks like the place of Satan's victory, what's shown instead? Satan can only bite at Jesus' heel. He can't destroy him. Satan seems to have triumphed, and yet he and Jesus seems to be transfixed by Satan's power. And yet death could not hold him. Jesus lifted up on the cross. What we, and it leads to the lifting up from the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. We'll celebrate last, next Sunday. It shows us that in his body he bore the covenant curse for our sin. Hallelujah. Now, how do we take our medicine? I love how this passage describes it. It's so simple. <laughs> it's so simple as to be annoying. I mean, What are the people supposed to do in order to get healing? No poultices, no dancing, no acts of feats of strength and skill, nothing to prove that you're worthy of it. Just look. Even a person in full paralysis, dying where the the poison has reached almost the limit, can do this. You look, you can move your eyes. Maybe you can't even move the rest of you, but you can look. You know, one of the things that it means to be a Christian is, yes, to look. But it means that we are people who continually look. We keep on looking at Jesus. And I want to close with this. One of my favorite dead Scottish pastors, um, Robert Murray McShane, um, he, he wrote this letter to a friend. And McShane died at age 30. He was a pastor in this little tiny country church didn't have a whole lot of ministry during his lifetime. But his writings, uh, he's had such a profound influence. And he, he captures in this letter, he sends to a friend. A friend who's like studying for the ministry, and he, he captures in this letter, what it means to be a person who looks to Jesus and keeps on looking to Jesus. Bear with me, I'm going to read this to you. He writes, I trust that your studies go well, dear friend. Learn much about your own heart, And when you have learned all you can, remember you have seen but a few yards into a pit inside of you that is unfathomable. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. In Him is such majesty, such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love. Repose in his almighty arms. Cry after divine knowledge. Lift up your voice for understanding. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that's in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. I must now commend you all to God in the word of grace. My, my dear people are just assembling right now for worship. Alas, I can't even preach to them tonight. I can only carry them and you in my heart to the throne of grace. Write to me soon, every yours, Robert Murray McShane. Man, there's something about that that I don't know about you, but I feel like we miss out on. What's he know that we don't? Those words. He's altogether lovely. Feel his all-settling eye, all-seeing eye settled on you in love. Repose in his almighty arms. Cry after divine knowledge. Lift up your voice for understanding. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ. Man, I want that. Don't you? This is what it means to look to Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. Oh, I remember that date years ago when I came to Jesus. This is what it means to be people who are freed from the love of the world, who are truly freed, because the sight of Jesus is all we need. This is what captivates our hearts. Let's pray that it would be so. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for this picture, or this picture of what the world looks like when it gets in our veins. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hate what destroys us and love what frees us. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes for Jesus, that we would be people who look to him not one time but every day, that our hearts would be filled with him, or that our joy cups would overflow with how much we know him and love of him and experience of him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.